We've been in a series in the book of Acts. We've been looking at really the story of the church. That's where we're at. It's uh, this ongoing narrative and drama uh, in which uh, the author, his name is Luke, is telling us a story of how this uh, community of followers of Jesus went from being this really small band of people that were in this isolated village in the north of Jerusalem, or north of Israel, I should say, to becoming this worldwide force that was really, for the most part, unstoppable. And that's what the church was all about. And today, we still see the church moving forward, advancing, doing good things. And this is the story. Uh, The passage that we'll be reading this morning, that, uh, again, what we typically do is we just take books of the Bible, we read through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, sometimes uh, this is great because you land on passages that are just filled with rich lessons, and you can learn. It's pretty easy. You read it, and it's just it like preaches itself. And there's other occasions when, um, I don't want to call it dry, but you can just read through stuff. And you're like, okay, what, what's, what's this all about? This, this kind of, in some ways, is, is sort of this story. Not, not that it's, it's boring, because it's not. It's actually really rich and powerful and amazing. Um, but the lessons, I think, as you as we'll kind of read through this, are sort of scattered throughout. And part of the reason, I think, for that is because we're going to read a, a large chunk of uh, scripture this morning. And Really, this large chunk actually dovetails into a larger chunk. So, in other words, if, if we were to just spend some time and read the entire story, the narrative, I think that Luke's kind of wanting us to focus on, we'd be reading through a couple chapters. And so, uh, I, I think because of our attention span, it'd be difficult to do that. So, I'm going to focus on just a short little area. I'll make some comments uh, as I go through it, and then I'll kind of summarize with some uh, highlights or thoughts, I think, that just kind of arise naturally, or some are kind of obvious, they're blatant, you can see them, and there's others that are not so obvious, not so blatant, but I think are, are part of the theme that Luke, which is the, you know, again, narrator of the story, is taking us through on his journey. So let me pray first, and then I'll just kind of read through, we'll pick it up this morning about verse 9, maybe it'd been a little bit before that, around verse 5, and then we'll read down about verse 25. It's a story uh, with lots of different things going on, lots of different moving parts, and it all makes sense to you as we read through it. So uh, let, let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump right in, and we'll see what God has to speak to us this morning. So, God, thank you so much that you draw us. God, we want right now uh, to bring our hearts into attention before you. Um, God, the thought that comes to my mind is uh, the majesty of God. And God, in our culture, the idea of stopping, pausing, being in awe, being amazed, by your majesty is, is something, Lord, that's distant, it's foreign in our culture. Um, it's common in today's culture to just uh, treat people with uh, familiarity. And yet, God, when it comes to you, we, we, we recognize that there are elements in which you call us to be sons and daughters in which we can come to you boldly. And yet there's also times throughout Scripture that describes the posture that we ought to have before you of, of one of awe and majesty. So, God, I pray that you would help us to just pause, to consider, to think upon, to reflect upon your greatness in this place, and how that you've chosen to interact and move and talk and communicate and uh, respond to us. So, Lord, uh, help us now as we read your word to learn from all the things that you have to teach us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. All right. I'm going to pick it up right around verse 5. You can follow along, and uh, we'll go through. Verse 5, Acts chapter 8, it's the story of this guy by the name of Philip. Uh, it's kind of worth picking up. Philip was 
um, one of the seven men that were in the early church uh, that kind of came from obscurity. No one really knew who he was. No one really knows much about him. He ends up becoming kind of a part of the leadership structure of the early church. Um, and yet he then kind of goes out and begins to do his own thing. Um, this was all done sort of by way of the impetus of persecution, meaning uh, lots of people were coming against the early Christians. They were forcing the early Christians to go away, um, leave their communities, leave their cities, leave their homes, leave their comfort zones. And everywhere these Christians went, they just took the message of God with them. It's kind of amazing that uh, they literally became missionaries all around the world. Uh, the best way to liken it to would be like if we are living in, you know, say, uh, Syria, and here we are, part of our communities, part of the social structure, you own a business, you know, um, your, your dad or whatever owns a family business, you know, uh, as a butcher, all right, or whatever, or you are a, um, a farmer or whatever. And all of a sudden, these radical Islamic groups came in like they recently did, like ISIS, and completely devastated local communities. And so if you're a Christian, you're basically given a choice, um, follow uh, Allah, recognize Muhammad as this prophet, or uh, we either kill you or we tax you to a point where you can't even be able to live around here. So you're basically forced with a decision. So we, we think we need to leave. We need to leave our home, leave our family businesses, leave our neighborhoods, leave our houses, leave our churches, leave everything behind. So the question then becomes one of where do I go? Now, wherever you go, though, because you have the, the word of God alive in you, you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, everywhere you go, you, you tell people about what Jesus has done in you, and you tell your stories. It, your stories become living and active, and that's what the early Christians were doing, is everywhere they were going, they were telling the story of Jesus. Um, Luke now focuses on one particular character in this story that we'll be looking at. His name's Philip. Now, I already mentioned who Philip is. Now, it tells us in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them, Christ. Um, Samaria was, um, uh, was a region in, uh, in, in the north part of Israel, and it was a part of the territory of the land that uh, has long, deep-rooted uh, Jewish prejudice against uh, Samaritans. Samaritans had these deep-rooted prejudice against Jewish people. Um, without going into the long history of this, the bottom line, you can just simply note that these two people groups hated each other. They absolutely hated each other, yet God loved both of those groups. And as God's work was kind of beginning to unpack in the lives of these followers of Jesus, God's heart was becoming shared by the hearts of Jesus' followers, which, by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will, over time, begin to love the things that God loves, and you will begin to hate the things that God hates. Um, Another way to think of it this way, you will become like Jesus. You'll become like that which you worship. So the other Christians, as they were being scattered all around the world, some were going into the region of Samaria, and they were sharing the gospel. They were telling these people who, for the most part, were a despised group of people, deep-rooted prejudices against them. They were communicating the gospel to them, and this is exactly what we see Philip doing. He went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed Christ to them. Verse 6, he says, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he had done. Verse 7, it says, For unclean spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed were healed. And verse 8 is this great summary verse. It says, And there was great joy in all of the city. So, again, uh, so far we see this picture, the gospel, as it's going out. The result of the gospel is liberation, freedom, what we would call salvation. People are being set free. 
uh, diseases are being overcome, prejudices is being undone. And the summary verse that we can just simply look at that and just say, enjoy was in a city. What a great way to define the ministry of what God was doing. Like, joy was defining this whole community. Like, not only individual people were being defined by joy, but communities were being defined by joy. That's what Jesus was doing, is transforming these people. Now, now this is radically contrasted, the way Luke's telling us, with the next few verses. So the rest of the story is not as, like, awesome and joy-filled. But, uh, again, Luke has a point that he wants to make, and we'll try to observe what some of those points are. So let's just keep reading, and it says this in verse 9. But... Whenever you read the word but, you're always just like, okay, what's about to come out? But, it says, but, there was a man named Simon. There was a musical going on behind, musical scheme going on behind. It would be kind of like now all, you know, minor chords and notes that are going to be played now. But, dun, 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 Simon enters into the scene. He is now the new character that enters onto the stage. Who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody Great, and that they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God. That is called the great. So you get the idea that now we're kind of setting the stage for a contest, a contest between the kingdom of God going out and bringing transformation and joy, contrasted with uh, this guy Simon, who is the great. He's known as, he's got this reputation. Um, with regard to black magic or whatever type of magic you want to describe, white magic, black magic, whatever. Black magic, magic is what this guy is known for. And he's got this massive following. He's well-known. Early uh, church writers had identified or had written about this guy um, and just kind of described him as basically this massive cult leader with this massive following of people in this region of Samaria. That's what we know. Verse 11 says, And they paid attention to him. Uh, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were all baptized. Both men and women, even Simon himself believed and was being baptized. He, uh, as he, after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing the signs and the miracles he performed, uh, he was, even he was amazed. So this is kind of amazing because... What, what Luke is telling us is that this guy who was this massive cult leader, um, in this, if you want to think of it in the, in the sense of a contest, the kingdom comes in not like, you know, game contest, but in a contest like a, like, a, like a rival, like the kingdom was not necessarily setting itself up as a rival, though it was, to this kind of counterfeit religion that was being promoted here. And uh, even so much so that, that Simon, this sorcerer, um, observes what's being not only uh, seen, but also hearing what's being communicated, and he's, he's amazed by this, uh, to the point where he notices large uh, groups of people that were once uh, formerly loyal to him, following him, are now uh, becoming disloyal to him and do his little thing that he's got going on, and they're turning to Jesus. They're getting baptized, they're following Christ, they're following the ways of, of Jesus uh, that are announced by way of the kingdom announcer, that is uh, Philip in this context. And so there's, there's a great move that's actually happening. And Luke tells us that this guy, Simon, is amazed by the message himself, and he gets baptized. So, so, so far, a lot of people, we think, you know, we read this up to this point, we're like, oh, great, this cult leader became a follower of Jesus. This is awesome, right? Um, not so much, because, again, the story builds up a little bit of the tension, where it's a little bit of the release, like, ah, oh, yes, even Simon, the cult leader, is 
following Jesus, but, but not, not so fast, Luke is kind of saying, because it's, it's not as simplistic as, as that. In verse 14, he says, Now when the apostles uh, at Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. Now, why, why did they do this? Why did the church in Jerusalem? Well, a couple of things that we learn here real quick is we learn where basically the church was sort of centralized out of. So, so for the most part, this early Christian movement, follower of Jesus movement, um, not only sort of began in Jerusalem, but also seemed to kind of be situated within the heart of Jerusalem, kind of the, the core of uh, Israeli life. Now, it shifts from Jerusalem in a couple chapters we'll see in the book of Acts. But at this point, it's, it's in Jerusalem, which means um, the apostles, the leaders, the ones that were followers of Jesus from the very beginning, they're kind of the ones that are sort of tasked with the responsibility to communicate truths, to send out people, to kind of commission, to ensure that everything's legit. So these guys hear word that, hey, the Samaritans, this hated, despised uh, people group that we've always been trained from our little years as toddlers to hate and despise, we hear they're getting saved. They're meeting Jesus. They're trusting in this message of the gospel. And Peter, uh, we're told that Peter and James, or uh, Peter and, and John is what we're told, uh, that these guys are basically now, they realize, well, we've, we've got to verify this. We've got to make sure that this is legit because everybody knows you can't trust the Samaritans, kind of the idea. Like, everybody knows you can't trust these people. They're shady. Uh, we're suspicious of them. And we have these deep-seated prejudices against them. And, and yet, we've got to go verify this because we don't want this rumor to get out. Back, obviously, in the days before uh, Twitter and Facebook and news and word can just spread like wildfire, go viral. Um, these guys wanted to verify to make sure that this is actually legit. So they send these guys down as delegates, Peter and John. And this is actually a pretty amazing thing, which I'll, I'll, I'll come back to in just a moment. The fact that John himself is, is one of the guys that's tasked to go down. And, and, and the reason why it's so significant, I'll come back to that in a moment, is, is uh, because John had this deep-rooted, uh, embedded prejudice against Samaritans, which, which I'll read in just a second here. But one of the things that we notice with regard to this story, in verse 15, it says, uh, they came down and they prayed for them and that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for, they had not, for the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon's, and I'll come back to this Simon in a second. So the big question is, is this is, for one, this, this is strange, right? If you've been following so far in the story of the book of Acts, you already know this is actually, this is, this is unusual. This is not a normal way in which God had done stuff. So what we saw in Acts chapter 2, when this community of Jesus people, call them Christians now, when um, Jesus told them, go wait in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit will come upon you on the day of Pentecost, something uh, supernatural happened, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. We saw that there were several different types of phenomenon that took place. Uh, we're told that there was this rushing, mighty wind that came through the window, or came through the window, came through the room, and it blew. We're told that there were these tongues of fire, um, whatever that meant, which we looked at that, um, rested upon their heads. And the third phenomenon, we saw that they all spoke in tongues. And these were kind of strange things that happened on that day of, of Pentecost. Um, but now, it seemed to be kind of this, uh, this one stage thing, that, that when they were followers of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit came upon. But here in this community of people, why didn't the uh, Samaritans receive this supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit at that moment? 
Um, and this, this is, uh, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to answer this question in the time that we have here, but um, do the best to just kind of communicate some thoughts on this. That a lot of scholars, what they believe is that because there were these deep-rooted, um, embittered mentality towards this community of Samaritans, again, prejudices that run centuries, um, what they wanted to do, what seems as if the Holy Spirit was doing, was to communicate that, that God has not distanced himself from this community of people, but that God has accepted these people. And so by sending Peter and John down, praying for them, and then seeing the Holy Spirit come upon them, the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon the early church in the book of Acts, was basically a verification from God saying, look, I've accepted all of them. It's almost as if saying, look, because I've accepted them, you guys are accept, you're to accept them as well. That there's no distinction, there's no like separation, there's no like the haves versus the have-nots, the good people versus the bad people, the in versus the out. In other words, all who come to me by faith, trust in me, will be accepted, will be received, will receive the same gift of the Holy Spirit. And that seems to be what was going on here. It was a way in which the Holy Spirit was conveying to this early community of people that God does not decide based upon your skin color or based upon your race or based upon what tribe you grew up in or what part of the country you grew up in or where you grew up or even what type of um, uh, strange doctrine or ideas about God you might have because all would recognize that the Samaritans had very strange theological ideas about God. But what was happening in this community was this strange group of people were turning to Jesus and Jesus was accepting them. Receiving them. This is amazing. What this means is earth-shattering. It means that God is not a respecter of people's skin color. And again, we'll come back to that in just a moment. So, these people lay hands on them, and they pray for them, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. But now, in around verse 16, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands by the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, so that anyone on whom I may lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But then Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. Some translations actually say, may you go to hell because of your suggestion. Like, really strong language, in other words, is what Peter's basically saying. Now, now why is Peter getting so strong with his words? I think the idea is he's sending a message. He recognizes, he discerns something with this guy, Simon. Something's off. Something's not right. This guy, Simon, has his track record of, manipulation of magic, of manipulating crowds, of wooing people. He's a cult leader, okay? And it appears that his conversion, whatever that is, was not genuine. Again, a lot of scholars disagree, and nobody is like uniform on this. On this. So, you know, you read uh, five commentaries, you get eight answers, right? Nobody is uniform on this. So some would say it's genuine. He loves Jesus. He's a follower of Christ. We're going to see him in heaven. Others would say, absolutely not. This guy's completely false. It's disingenuous. Um, at the end of the day, we don't really know. But what we do know is that something's not quite right here. But the point is that this guy, Simon, thinks that somehow you can purchase this gift. And he's looking at this power of God as sort of a magic trick. Um, rather than simply looking at God as being a treasure, he's looking at God as something to, to have God as a means of getting something bigger and better. In other words, it's what we would typically call kind of Someone who's just simply religious. Someone that uses religion as a means of getting something from God, not so much as a means of getting God. In other words, let me put it this way. A lot of times people come to church not because they have this deep 
embedded desire to worship, to love, to know, to commune, to relate with God, they come to church because they see God as a means of getting a spouse, of getting a job, of earning a promotion, of uh, maybe being healed from some sort of a disease. Again, um, God can heal people. God does heal people. God does give jobs. God does give spouses. God does and oftentimes do these things. But the point that I'd make, not always, not always. Sometimes following God actually takes us down paths of deep brokenness. But here's the problem is that if you see God as merely as nothing more than a means of getting something from him, then really what you're doing is you're basically saying that that thing, whatever that is, whatever that variable is in your life, is of utmost importance in your life. That God is merely just a means to get to that thing. What we would call that in Bible language, it's an idol. You've, you've replaced God, the creator God, the creator good, uh, for something that is man-made, something that is created, and you're simply using God as a means to get to whatever that thing is that is your chief good. Rather than seeing God as the chief good and worshiping him no matter what. No matter what type of brokenness or hurt or broken dreams you might get in the meantime. Because God's the greatest good. So Simon seems to be this guy who's trying to manipulate, trying to rig the system. Trying to use God to get power. Because Simon was termed, called, he was known as the great power. Right. So Simon used, where we told, magic as a means of wowing people, eyeing people. And so in his mind he's thinking, man, if, if, I, can, if I can hang out with these guys... If I can buy this trick, if I can get this Holy Spirit move, this power, then somehow my crowd, my uh, influence will increase if I can somehow obtain this Holy Spirit, whatever the Holy Spirit is. And so Peter turns to him and is like, you're, you're lost. You have no idea what you're talking about. You can't purchase God. God is not about a power. God is not about somehow becoming a means to your ends. God is the end. God is the ultimate end. God is the ultimate value which, which if we see him as a treasure, then we'll discover that. If we see God as a means to our treasure, then, then we'll just simply try to manipulate God. And here's the thing. One of the best ways to identify um, and to even verify in your own heart, um, is God the treasure in your life or is God a means to your treasure? Um, ask yourself or run through your mind the thought process. What happens if God does not give you what you want, what you desire, what you long for? How do you think about God now? What happens if rather than praying for health and healing and wholeness from cancer, from other disease you might have, if rather than being healed from that, you end up suffering even further about that with that, would you then look at God as somebody that has let you down? Would you become angry with God? What if God doesn't give you uh, the spouse or give you the job or give you the things that you so eagerly or desperately want or the position you want? What happens if that does not happen? How do you view God now? Because if you look at God now as somebody that you are focusing your anger and your frustration at, then there's a very good possibility that God was simply really nothing more than a means to that end as opposed to simply being the, the end, the treasure of, of your heart. And so this seems to be what Peter is focusing upon when he says this. Verse 20 says, But Peter then said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, he basically tells him what he needs to do. He says, repent, therefore, of the wickedness that, uh, of, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, uh, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Pretty strong words. But the point is, is that, look, you don't have to keep going down this path. There's hope for you, Simon. Like, like the path that you're on right now is a path that will lead you to further complicated, complex bitterness. But you can be set free from that. And the freedom that is presented to him is by way of this path that Peter says, repent. Basically, the word repent means to turn away, to think differently. If you're going down one path, and that path is a path that leads to brokenness or death or further bitterness or hatred, to turn from that path, to turn to a different path, and the path that Peter is basically presenting to him is the path of Christ, the path of Jesus, the path whereby you can be saved and recognized and salvation and wholeness and joy and all these other things that he's describing can become yours, not connected to necessarily circumstances, but connected to God himself. And then finally, it says in verse uh, 24, and then Simon answered, pray for me that the Lord, uh, pray to me, pray for me that the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. In verse 25, we'll finish there. It says, now, when they had testified and had spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel uh, to many villages of the Samaritans. So, that's the passage which we'll look at. I want to kind of summarize just with a handful of things to consider, to think about. I think that are uh, there within the text. Some of them um, we kind of already tackled or covered. Some of them are pretty explicit, pretty, you know, there. I just kind of want to make a little bit of a finer point upon them. Others of them are a little bit more subtle. I want to kind of hopefully bring them up so you can observe them and think about them and be amazed by them. So, one, we'll take a look at a couple things. One is we see that Paul later is going to describe the gospel as being this power. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he describes the gospel of God as being this power of God unto salvation. It's a great passage. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Christ, or the good news, the gospel, is another way of saying that. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. So the way Paul understood the good news, the announcement that Jesus is king, that Jesus is bringing his kingdom to rescue, to save, to help, to assist um, those that are bound in brokenness and sin and rebellion and bitterness and all these other things, uh, Paul says it's this power, it's this power that motivates, that moves, that transforms, that reshapes, that reorients my heart from brokenness to a path of life. Paul looks at this gospel and says, it is a power, it is the power of God. Here's a couple of things to think about with regard to the power of the gospel. So one, I think the power of the gospel that we already kind of looked at, kind of just focus one a couple more things to think about, is the power of gospel actually undoes racial prejudices. Again, um, the more I read the book of Acts, the more I'm just convinced that this is a powerful message all throughout the book of Acts. That you can't read the book of Acts without somehow missing this or seeing this. I mean, again, you can be willfully ignorant to this, but what I want for us as we read our Bibles to not be willfully ignorant, but that when we read this story, that we're we're amazed by this. Because I I think it's an absolutely powerful testimony of this God that's alive. Because I've said this before, but the reality is that all societies throughout all history um, have had to some degree some form of racial uh, racial tolerance, you know, where you've just kind of lived with each other. But the way that most societies throughout all ages have, for the most part, been um, wired together is by way of a system of uh, law and order. And then the third thing I would think about is fear. So you have laws that say everybody learn to get along. You have order that says if you don't get along, we'll throw you in jail or we'll execute you or we will crucify you or whatever. 
And then the third thing is, is, is fear. Fear is what ties everything together. So you've always had cultures throughout civilization uh, that have somehow been able to fuse together, merge together, even though there's great uh, diversity. But that's radically different than the church, because what you have in the church, um, especially as you read in the book of Acts, and what we need to strive for, I think, as a church, is not simply people coming together by way of, uh, and being held together by way of law and order and then fear. Um, what you have in the church is a community of people come together by way of love, whereby we love each other, no matter what the color of your skin is, no matter what type of prejudices you know, my parents may have had, or my grandparents may have had, or um, my upbringing may have told me, be wary of those people with different color skin. Be wary of those people from this other group or other tribe. Be wary, be skeptical, be suspicious of this group of people. But what you have in the gospel is Jesus saying, accept you all based upon faith. Trust me and I will wash you and cleanse you and transform you and bring you into this family. And the early church knew this. They, they didn't get this perfectly because as we see in the next few chapters, God is beginning to move them, nudge them into what you might look at as this universal church where the church is composed of all sorts of different types of races and skin colors, but they're held together not by way of law and order and fear, but they're held together by way of love. So we see that the gospel is really undoing these types of prejudices that were preexistent within the culture throughout all ages. So let me, let me put it the way Tim Keller describes it. He's got some great things to say about this. I'll just read it because it's, it's really good. He says this, At the heart of the Christian's view of spiritual reality is a man who gave his life in sacrifice for people who did not believe in him. A man who died asking forgiveness for people who were killing him. Therefore, Christianity is an exclusive claim, but it is the most inclusive, exclusive claim because it wants you to exclusively believe in this man in other words, Jesus is the focal point of what we preach, of what we proclaim, and what we're all about. Not many Jesuses, not the Jesus in your own definition, but the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture. So there is an exclusivity to this, but there's this radical inclusivity as well. He goes on to say, he says, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive claim because it wants you to exclusively believe in this man who died for his enemies and asks you to love and care for, uh, for yours, your enemies as well. Next slide. He says, so, does the message that Jesus is the only way to God necessarily lead to intolerance? It's a really important question. Because, uh, I just recently read Communist Manifesto. I don't know why I like reading stuff, and I thought, oh, I've never read that before. It'd be interesting to read Communist Manifesto. Um, anyways, I, I read it. One thing that's interesting is it has this take on religion. It basically re- views religion as really nothing more than this oppressor. It is, it, it's an oppressor that has power claims that brings the masses of people into some form of conformity. In other words, it's nothing more than a means to manipulate the masses of people. And um, I, I think theoretically, uh, you can look at history and say, uh, and ask the question, has Christianity done this? And the answer is yes. Throughout Christian history, in fact, within what we would call Christendom, Christianity has had this really bad track record in history of manipulating scores legions of people. But I think it's oftentimes due to the fact that the people that are somehow utilizing Christianity as this manipulative tool misunderstand the claims of Christianity at its core. This is what Tim Keller is saying here. So listen to what he goes on to say. He says, Christians can only become intolerant to the degree that they misunderstand 
the heart of the gospel, namely the good news that the Almighty God himself came to serve us and die for us so that we could be saved, not because of our right beliefs and behavior, but by the gifts of his unmerited grace. That message, rightly grasped, cannot lead to coercion or intolerance. The gospel has within it deep resources for humility and respect. It is up to the Christians to prove this assertion with their lives. It's a great, great passage. It's totally true. But the reality is, is that if we live in a lifestyle that's completely intolerant towards people, it is really only serves as a verification that we're not grasping the central tenets of Christianity at its core. Somehow, we've somehow misconstrued Christianity as a means of somehow extending my own kingdom or exercising my own power claims over other people. But the reality is, is that Christianity is about a God that has done something for us. It's not about us presenting our best merits and gifts and goods and whatnot to God and saying, God, do you accept me? But what Christianity is about is about a God who's done something for us and says, trust me, I accept you. Look, um, another way to put it is Martin Luther kind of described Christianity is by faith we are saved. It's sola fide. It's the idea that we are by, by faith, by trusting in God, we are made right. We are justified, made right with God by way of our confidence in God. If we are saved by right doctrine, then what that means is that we can then chop society up into the haves, those that know right doctrine, and the have-nots, those that don't see certain teachings within the church in the exact same way, dotting the same I's, crossing the same T's as I do. Which means I can look at anybody that does not hold the certain teachings the way I do, and I can look down upon them with, with condemnation. But if we are saved by faith, meaning no matter how broken we are, no matter how messed up we are in our theology and our understanding, if we trust in this Jesus that says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and burdened and struggling and you're filled with angst and rage and challenges and sin and rebellion, come to me, I will accept you. Then what that means is that nobody is excluded from God's kingdom. The only people that are excluded are those who say, I don't want it. But that still is never the right to look it down upon other people condescendingly. Because this is what we see the church doing, is that they were taking this gospel message, this good news, to all people, even the Samaritans. Second thing, we'll wrap this up real quickly, is the power of the gospel also contrasts with all other religious claims. And we see this with this guy, Simon. Uh, he is this religious leader. A couple things uh, we see with regard to him, just, just one thing that kind of comes to my mind, is with regard to this guy, Simon, his central message focused upon him. He was sort of this Teacher, celebrity, almost all cults, world religions, other than Christianity, basically say, look, your way into the good life, whatever that is, is by way of following the prophet, by way of following the celebrity, by way of following the certain uh, charismatic head of this community. What Christianity is about, that we see right here in the message, is that he comes, Philip comes, preaching the kingdom of God. It's about God establishing his reign upon this world in our lives. It's about us ordering our lives according to God. And it's what we see, that it contrasts radically, and you can even say upends um, other forms of world religion that we see even going on right here within the context. The final thing we see is that the power of God also transforms people. I'll finish with two quick case studies. One, John. I mentioned John earlier. And why it's really profound that John is called to go down to this region of Samaria 
Because um, I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you want, Luke chapter 9 describes this little story. I'll just kind of make a mention to it. So Jesus, just before he dies, goes to the uh, region of Samaria. He's with John. And John, something happens within the situation is that they come and they try to make preparations for Jesus' death and whatever that meant for them. Um, but the people didn't receive John and the other apostles. In other words, they weren't like warmly welcomed. Duh. There's deep embedded prejudices against each other. I mean, John and the apostles didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans liked, didn't like Jewish people. So the Samaritans were just simply treating the Jewish people the same way the Jewish people treated them, which was with, with condescension and spite. Now, now, John, I love this because listen to John's response. He says, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and to kill them? I mean, just think about this. Can you imagine praying like that? You're like, Lord, here's what I'm thinking. Like, how about we call down, like, like, like lightning from the sky and absolutely scorch an entire village? Would that, would that be a great idea? And Jesus is like, you have no idea what you're talking about. So, so here's what's amazing. So, so this was John at one point ready to call down fire and completely destroy this community of people that he despised. Now, John is going down and he's praying for them. That's powerful, because what it means is that those who follow Jesus are immediately thrown into this process of becoming transformed, where those prejudices are being undone, God is rewiring your heart, you are falling in love with the things of God, you're beginning to hate the things that God hates, and your life is being changed. Finally, the story ends with this guy, Simon. Back to Simon. Simon, the cult leader, Simon the well-known power of God, whatever that meant. We're, we're, we finished with the story of Simon because Simon, again, we saw in this like, strange situation, he seems to make this profession of faith in Jesus. He gets baptized, uh, and then he kind of communicates some really strange things, like, I want to buy the Holy Spirit. How do I buy this Holy Spirit? And how much is it worth? And then Peter rebukes him. He's like, you are so lost you don't get it. You don't understand what Christianity is all about. You don't understand what Jesus has done for you, but you can repent. And then Simon ends by basically saying, okay, okay, pray for me. But that's where the story ends with Simon. Like, we don't really know. Does Simon really, truly repent? Does Simon really turn away from his sin, turn from his evil ways, and turn to the redemptive healing ways of God? We don't really know. I mean, history, there's a whole sordid history about this guy, Simon, lots of myth and stories about it. But the point that I'd make is, is all we're simply left with in the story is Luke just ends the story with Simon abruptly. We have no idea, which I think in some ways is like this cliffhanger moment to cause us to ask the question, what about you? What about you? If, if you, like Simon, are in the, in, the, in the pit of bitterness and gall, the way he describes it. In other words, your life is trapped, bound by Bitter emotions towards God, towards life, towards humanity. You can be set free. God can change you. But you got to turn. You got to turn from. You got to recognize the false path that you're down right now. You got to recognize that you have a hand from God extending out to you to rescue you. So, what choice do you make? What decision do you turn to? What path will you choose? The Christianity, at the end of the day, is really not only about proclaiming a message, but it's also about an invitation, turning to this God that has turned to us to say, turn to me, turn to me, turn away from those other things that lead to brokenness and bitterness and literally compound and bring further brokenness upon your life and turn to me and I will give you life. So that's what we want to do now. We're going to finish. Why don't we all stand and uh, have the worship team come on up. We'll respond. We'll sing a song or two. Um, we'll partake of communion. It's a way of reminding us of the story that we find ourselves in, Christianity, 
I've said this before, um, oftentimes has an emblem of a cross, which is apt. Um, but I think Christianity should also probably, at least if anything, include an emblem of, of a table because Jesus welcomes his followers. He says, come, and each time you eat of the bread and you drink the cup, be reminded of the fact of what you've been invited to. Um, Peter rebukes this guy, Simon. He says, don't you understand that God gives a gift? You can't buy it. There's only one thing that you can do with a gift is you, is you receive it. We receive God's gift. So if you're here this morning and, and you have received God's gift, uh, rejoice in that. Like Recognize the fact that you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. God somehow by grace, by his love, gave you this thing. Uh, if you're here this morning and you are still trying your best to get God's attention by what you're doing, how you're living, how you're acting, how you're praying, or all these other religious observances and activities, um, there's hope for you today because you can, you can cease, you can rest, you can stop doing all of this commotion and receive this morning the gift of life that God gives to you. So as we worship, as we sing, if you're here this morning, there's prayer, needs that you have, anything that's going on in your life, you would look at yourself and say, yes, bitterness is what defines me. Um, we want to pray for you. We have people over by the cross that would love to pray for you. Receive the bread, receive the cup, and let's respond to this God. So let me pray, and we'll respond. Sound good? You guys good? All right. God, thank you for your great love, and we, right now, uh, turn our hearts to focus, to meditate, to consider you, worship you.